Hello and mellow greetings to all. You were tuned in to Frivolous Gravitas. Our wonderful listeners worldwide on iTunes, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and wherever else you may have found yourself dialed into this very special episode of Frivolous Gravitas. To all of you, it is with tremendous honor that I'm granted the privilege of introducing today's guest and star of the show to discuss the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, also known as the Palestinian problem, which I object to, uh, in name, I mean. Uh, we've been itching to cover this subject for a while now, and before we get that out of the way, please let me introduce our guest, expert joining us today from across the pond. Uh, Professor Raphael Cohen Almagor uh, hails from his professorship at University of Hull, where he is chair of politics and director of the Middle East Study Group. After earning his PhD at Oxford, he has made himself an astoundingly prolific participant to modern scholarship and social discourse as a world-renowned voice against oppression, abuse, coercion, and violence of many sorts. He has demonstrated a lifelong dedication to serve a greater social good with his breadth of expertise as a fervently outspoken advocate for truth and reconciliation, further demonstrated by his donated time to be with us here today. Dr. Cohen Almagor has written on heavily... Uh, weighted subjects with our listeners will find familiar to this channel, but more specifically, he's published academic papers on such internet regulation, uh, cyberbullying, end-of-life rights and euthanasia, socio-political pieces, analyzing and dissecting Israeli, uh, Israel-Palestine conflict, and most recent, recently, he's released his newest book titled Just Reasonable Multiculturalism, published by Cambridge University Press, and we've got a separate episode entirely for uh, dedicated just to cover some of my questions and an introduction and uh, some of his motivations on writing that book. So his list of merits could consume our entire broadcast, such as the painful reality of all our mortal endeavors. I'll have to be unfair to the distinguished professor and neglect to mention all of his achievements and accolades in their entirety in this brief introduction. So I strongly urge our listeners to check in the notes of the description for links to more of his work. Um, today, I'd like to uh, I'd like to get us started into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and to do that, I think we might want to give a little bit of background to what we're discussing, um, some of the key players and some of the roles of um, of those players. So, geography might be the easiest place to start because I believe it was from the two-state solution that most of our our talks and negotiations have been trying to move forward. I don't think anybody's seriously considering a one one state solution as a as a proper solution, to my knowledge. Uh, I could be wrong, but maybe to take us in to the fray, you could discuss um, your you could elucidate on who who's involved here. Who are the Palestinian people, uh, for starters? Because a lot of people are making claims that there are no Palestinians because you know the the uh, the Britons took over from the Ottoman Empire and then gave it to uh, the Jews after World War II. Were no people, or you know, there's a, there's a lot of banter and common talk about what's what in the region. So, to start us off, who are the Palestinian people and who are the Israeli people? And then maybe we'll get into the political groups after, like Hamas, Hezbollah, and the government. Okay. Uh Thank you very much for this. Uh, I don't want to trouble you with a very long lecture about the, the roots of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, we don't have the time for this. And 
I, I would just give some snapshots for your listeners, our listeners, to understand what the context is. First of all, I want to start by saying that there are no angels in this story. Uh, if you are looking for uh, angels, you have to look elsewhere. That that's the wrong place. Uh, bye bye. Um, what we are talking about is two people who have justified claims on a very small piece of land with a lot of emotions, and unfortunately, because it's so protracted conflict, the more that it lasted, the more complicated it becomes because. There's more violence involved, more blood has been shed, and therefore uh, the emotions run wilder. And, and that's, uh, that's great pity because there are many, many similarities at the end of the day between the Israelis and the Palestinians. We have to go back to, to history in order to understand uh, the roots and uh, ideological, religious, political, um, sociological roots to the conflict. So according to the Jewish belief, um, for the past 4,000 years, some people say 5,000 years, uh, there were Jews in that corner of the world that has different names, uh, Canaan, uh, Palestine, Palestina, Israel, Eretz Israel. Um, since the biblical times, there was presence, Jewish presence in that corner of the world. The Arabs uh, came to, to that corner in the 7th century during the Arab Empire when they took over uh, large chunks of Asia, Africa, and Europe. And because if you look at the map, you'll see that um, Palestine is situated um, in, the, in the X, in the, in the um, intersection of, of three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia. You can understand that any empire uh, who respected itself wanted to have Palestine uh, because it's such a geopolitical um, place and such uh, weighty importance for commerce, for waging wars, for defending your, your empire and so on. So the Arab came to Palestine in the, in the 7th century, 644, I think, and they never left. Um, so this is where um the two people found themselves in the same same place so there was from the 7th century there was uh, quite substantive far more substantive than jewish there were quite substantive arab population in palestine and there was a small jewish population in palestine and it stays like this until the 19th century and so there were not many problems not uh, to the extent that we, we see now. Uh, so there will be skirmishes and sometimes there will be um, misunderstanding or rivalry between the two, the two parties. But there was no, not that I can think of a well-known war between uh, Jews and, and Arabs in Palestine at the time. And, and in any event, everything all the time, Palestine was conquered by another party, a third party that, of course, seeks public order. All empires want public order because, you know, Lack of public order is not good for your empire. In the 19th century, uh, there were uh, pogroms, meaning violent uh, persecutions of Jews in Eastern Europe, primarily in Russia and Ukraine. And to evade the pogroms that cost lives and cost communities, um, people decided they need to leave. They had enough. 
they could not live in fear for such a long time. So the impetus was the, was the pogroms. And so it happens that the pogroms came at the same time when there was a great man leading a life in Vienna, quite in peace. I mean, Vienna was very anti-Semitic, but that person was an assimilated Jew. He didn't care that much about Judaism. Um, but um, later in his life, when he was in, 30s, in his 30s, that person uh, saw injustice uh, very close to him. And uh, because he was a just person, he decided uh, that he's going to do something about it. Uh, that person's name was Theodor Herzl. And Theodor Herzl was an ingenious sort of a guy, a man with vision. And he decided that he will task himself to try to solve the uh, Jewish problem in Europe. And he convened the first uh, Zionist convention uh, in Basel. Um, and um, his main allies were the people from Russia and Ukraine who wanted to evade the pogroms that I mentioned. And then we, they, we start to see uh, waves of immigration, what uh, the Israelis call Aliyah, which means to ascend, um, ascending to Israel, leaving Europe and starting a life in Israel. Was and, this, uh, did Herzl do this um, via pamphlets or did he just kind of stoke the fires? Uh, how did he get the word of this? Uh, uh, he he was we... a brilliant, brilliant organizer. He was an orator, one of the brilliant orators ever. And he was a journalist. Oh, okay. And he was a person of means, not his own, his wife's. <laughs> which he spent um, on traveling to meet the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, to meet the British, whoever he could meet uh, in London. Uh, he went to Prussia, he went to Russia, he went all over the place where to meet with leaders of the world that for some reason they were willing to see him. You know, it's, it's quite a, a task to ask for an audience with the leader of a country. And he was able to see quite a few of them, and he, he tried to, because he was not um, a religious Jew, he just wanted to solve the problem, so he was looking for a piece of land. So, you know, there were ideas, uh, Uganda, mm -hmm. uh, Madagascar, um, Sinai Desert in, in Egypt. I mean, he couldn't care less, but, you know, all the Zionists told him, come on, the only thing that really unites us together is Zion. Zion means Israel, mm -hmm. one of the eldest names for Israel. So, was there a focus you know, on Jerusalem at that time too? Um, you know, the name Zion has different meanings. So, from from the small to the large. So, Zion is the name of a mount, Mount Zion. Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. So, because of the importance of that mountain, then later it developed that the city of Jerusalem is called Zion, could, and later Israel is called Zion. So, the name Zion has three different meanings from the small to the larger. Could the weakening, the, gen, the, the slow weakening of the Ottoman Empire at that time uh, had contributed to this being a more viable uh, project? Yes. Yes. He, he spoke to the Sultan, and he, but he also spoke to the British. Yeah. And, and to anyone else who could help. He just wanted a solution. And anyone mm -hmm. who was willing to offer some sort of uh, reprieve for the Jews, he was willing to engage and talk to them. He would talk to anybody uh, just to see that uh, Europe 
is not going to strike more victims among Jews. Um, so Jews have to take control over their own destiny. Uh, they have to be their own defenders. They should not rely on others because the others are doing very poor jobs in defending them. So the only way is to exit Europe, and as I said, it could not care less where to. But um, his idea about Uganda actually was passed successfully, was able to pass the motion in the Zionist Congress. But people told him, you know, it, it was passed because he didn't want to humiliate you, because we appreciate you so much. But actually, you know, stop speaking like this, because nobody's going to go to Uganda. And he said, okay, well, you know, Jews are going to suffer. He was a visionary. Um, it's going to be problematic. It's not going to be easy. But if that's what you want, that's what you want to have. But this is where he put his destiny on Palestine. And uh, the guy in 42 years, I think he died when he was 42, early 40s. In 42 years of life, he did uh, things that the vast majority of us don't do in a much you know, longer lifetime. He was an amazing character. So the first alias started in the second half of the 19th century. And, and the first alias was defeated by poverty, by the malaria, uh, by uh, the heat, uh, by uh, working very uh, hard on, on, on agriculture. Agriculture is one of the most difficult things you can do in your life. Yeah, that's, one, that's uh, pretty standard for establishing colonies is the low success rate. Yeah, and, and they never worked in agriculture. Yeah. You know, they were petty uh, commerce, you know, uh, working in the markets. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so the first year, 25,000 people. They were defeated. They left. The majority of them left. And, and there were only 10,000 people. However, the second year, the second immigration was extremely important. Again, from the same corner of the world, uh, Eastern Europe, Poland, Russia, Ukraine. Uh, and it was so important because, so it happened that in that wave of immigration, uh, some years later, after the first attempt, there were very important people. Um, and first and foremost was David Ben-Gurion, who later became the first prime minister of Israel, the George Washington of Israel. And uh, uh, these two people, um, Theodor Herzl and David Ben-Gurion, are the two key figures to understand the success of Zionism. Because both of them were visionaries and both of them were doers, people who do stuff, and they were leaders. So the second aliyah did not succumb to all the obstacles and the majority of people stay there. Now they have the backbone of leadership to push the entire project forward. Then came other aliyahs, and of course the largest aliyahs, uh, waves of immigration, uh, started in 1933. And guess why? That's the year that Hitler came to power. So some people, some Jews understood what's going to happen and they flee. And this is when Jews came uh, with large numbers to Palestine. And this is when the Arabs were, became very, very concerned because as long as they were, they were small, they were weak. But now they came with tens of thousands or sometimes even hundreds of thousands. There was one wave of Aliyah of a quarter of a million. That was problematic. Hey, what are you doing here? Now, in 1922, the British took over from the, from the Ottoman Empire. Now, there was the British Mandate. And the British, you know, they, uh, for them, public order is extremely important. So all they want is just to preserve the peace. So they found themselves in the midst of all these clashes between the Arabs on the one hand and uh, the Jews on the other. 
And they try to establish some sort of modus vivendi, of peace between the two. But it didn't go very well, especially when you have such a pressure in the face of Nazism that is coming quite close. I mean, Al-Alamein, you know, Africa, not very far from, uh, from, from Palestine. So and there was a lot of pressure going fleeing, on. They also had their backs to the wall, like they couldn't go back. So it was kind of like Cortez burning his ships once they landed, right? They didn't, they didn't think of coming back. There's no yeah, way that they're going to go back to the Nazis now. Uh, the, it was very bad in the 30s. And, and the first rumors uh, about the death camps started uh, to come in 42. Um, so, no. Just solidified their resolve. So, so if I resolve, but bear in mind, it's it's not easy. These are immigrants. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm an immigrant myself, and now I live in Britain. I can tell you, it's one of the hardest things you can do in your life. And uh, um, they didn't speak the same language. Um, they came from different countries with different languages. Uh, Hebrew was not spoken at that time. Hebrew was just emerging. And many people came without any Hebrew. And when you don't have the language, and you come from Eastern Europe, like Winnipeg, what, minus 25, minus 30? Uh, <laughs> unlivable. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care what the settlers here did. It's unlivable. <laughs> unlivable, um, yeah. And so moving from minus 30 to plus 40, mm, not easy. Mm -hmm. Plus the Arabs, plus the British. I mean, there's a lot of going on, and it was not easy. Um, 47, 29th of November, 1947, a very important event took place um, in the United Nations when the United Nations acknowledged their strife over the Jews in Europe and acknowledged the need for the Jews to have a home, a Jewish home, a state. And the decision, the, it's called the partition decision, the decision was to uh, partition Palestine to two states. What was called the Arab state, so no Palestine. Palestine is, is a development that came in the 1960s when the PLO was established and they wanted to differentiate themselves from the rest of the Arabs. There are about 25 Arab countries. So that's the way that they wanted to differentiate and have their own character, their own personality, their own identity. So Palestine is, is a later development that came in the 60s. But if someone wants to call him Palestine, you know, I, I cannot tell you not to call him Palestine as I wouldn't dare to call you America. Well, it's a weird term as it is because it, its roots run from the word Philistine, do they not? Um, in Herodotus, when he's describing the area, and it doesn't really have anything to do with Arabs as it is until it was well, informed it by current history. It has to do with the name of the place. So yes. The, name of the, place the Romans was, called the area Palestina, which was... Palestina, Palestine, Palestine... Mm -hmm. And the they are the natives of, of Palestine, so mm -hmm. they are called the Palestinians. But the idea in forty-seven was to split this piece of land to two, and one was called Israel, the Jewish state, and one was called the Arab state. That was the idea. Um, if there is a point of time that if I will have it, some sort of a time tunnel, time machine, that's the day that I would like to leave, the day of the partition plan. Because people say that the jubilation that was seen in Palestine by the Jews at that time was unseen before in any other place on earth. 
Um, there were people dancing on the streets. It was night now. It was evening when it all happened in Israel time. And uh, people were just dancing in the streets. Um, hope. Hope for sovereignty. Hope for taking control. Hope for statehood. And that was wonderful. The problem is that as this idea was cherished by the Jews, it was vehemently rejected by the they detested it. I, I think that's the first problem too, right? Is because when you have a UN resolution of the United Nations saying this is so, and then you've got one party exuberant and jubilant and you know happy about it, and the other party denying it outright, it's hard for them to make any claims moving on every time the UN makes a resolution after it. It's predicated on the fact that the first one is accepted when it wasn't. Right. So that's sort of part of the problem today, if I'm not mistaken. It seems like all the people, all these plans that have been going on since the 19th century all had an element of we'll deal with the people that are already there when we get there. And so this seems to be a more official version of that. Now we have to deal with that. And here's how we're going to deal with it. And good enough. Let's move on. Well, the, the twice, at least twice before, there was the idea of partition. There was the Balfour Declaration, which is the Balfour Letter of the uh, um, early century of the 20th century. And then there was the Peel Report, uh, Lord Peel, that was devised to try to find a solution to the, to the Jewish-Arab conflict in Palestine. And all of them spoke about dividing the land to two, um, Arab and, and Jewish. Uh, the problem was that uh, the Arabs were, felt themselves far stronger than the Jews, in, in any way, in any aspect that you can imagine, primarily in terms of numbers, you know, numbers are important. So in 47, 48, there were about 1.2 million Arabs in, in Palestine and about 600,000 Jews. So half. Uh, so if you take it as one, so it's one third Jewish, two third Arab. And uh, um, the Arabs felt that they, they are the majority, they, they should have their, their way, they should have their say. And they didn't want to accept that uh, they have to find a solution to what they perceive as a European problem. Why you, Europe, impose your problem on us? You know, you have to sort out your own problems. Uh, why should us be blameworthy for this? Why we should take problem of, of anti-Semitism in Europe and bring it to, to Palestine? It's unacceptable. So they rejected the idea. And they continuously rejected the idea. And from 47 until uh, 48, um, there was um, skirmishes, a lot of a lot of infighting, a lot of terrorism, a lot of violence between the two parties. And uh, the British were licking their wounds from World War II. Remember, England was demolished in World War II. Uh, they had to rebuild Britain. So were those conflicts yeah. sanctioned by the by the political parties that were governing uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians or the Arabs, I should say? Or was it just fringe groups that were going off and committing acts of violence against the other the other groups? Partisans. The, no, we didn't call them partisans. But the, the, I mean, it's all you know propaganda language. Yeah. So the Israelis called the the Arabs called them gangs, and the Arabs called the the Israeli undergrounds. They called them a terrorist organization. So uh, the terminology is. We can have a discussion about terminology, but not today. No, um, <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is that the British were licking their wounds and they say, okay, enough is enough. We have to look now inward 
um, to ourselves. Britain matters, and uh, we need to fix Britain. And now Palestine is liability. We are living. So they announced that they are living and uh, Palestine. And uh, then there was this the question whether to declare statehood or not. And, uh, you know, sometimes you need to have a leader in place. And uh, uh, David Ben-Gurion understood that he needs to seize the moment, not to wait. And by the way, some of his friends and colleagues told him not to do that uh, because they knew what's going to happen. War is going to happen. And uh, he said, no, we have to seize the moment. The moment they leave, we declare statehood. So the 14th of May, 1948, the British left. And in the afternoon, David Ben-Gurion uh, declared statehood. That was the birth of, of Israel. And as the arms uh, promised, um, the young state uh, didn't have even one day of freedom, of independence to enjoy, uh, was attacked at midnight by five uh, armies who came from the outside, plus all the Arabs inside Palestine. It was a very bloody war, and it was long war. It's uh, about 15 months war, um, and the end of which um, Israel prevailed. Now, Is there are many... first Antifada? Uh, sorry? Is that the first Antifada? No, no, no. Antifada is 87. Oh, that's oh, sorry. Later. This is called the 1948 war. Oh, okay. Which is actually the 1947-48 war. The, um, the Israelis call it uh, independence war, war of independence. Uh, the Arabs call it the Nakba, the catastrophe. Uh, uh, why it was catastrophe? Because this was the birth of the refugee problem. About between 650 to 700,000 Arabs had to flee their homes, and now they're scattered all around Israel. So some are in the West Bank, some in Gaza, some in Egypt, some in Jordan, some in Lebanon, some in Syria, and some went to Canada and all over the world. But the majority of them are in the refugee camps in the West Bank, in Gaza, and around Israel. And that's one of the major problems that interfere with uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict and with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that it's not resolved. And you cannot resolve the conflict without uh, paying attention to the refugee problem. And since 1947-8, the first uh, Arab-Israeli war, unfortunately, that region knew many other wars. So after 47-8, there was 1956, that's the Suez campaign. And then after that was 1967, this is the Six-Day War. Then was 1973, the Yom Kippur War. And then 1982, the Lebanon War, the first Lebanon War that lasted eight years until 2000. And then 2006, uh, and second Lebanon War, Israel, Lebanon War, Israel, Hezbollah War. And then uh, there were several um, exchanges, let's call it this way, uh, military um, encounters or confrontation between Israel and Hamas. So mm -hmm. in 2008, 9, 2012, 2014, and most recently. Just two uh, weeks ago. <laughs> well, uh, a few months that. ago. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's just a lot of violence. And as I said, violence brings more violence and it doesn't bring us closer to peace, unfortunately. And it sort of breeds more hatred between peoples too. Like they're less likely to reconcile, I find. Absolutely. Tensions are flared up like that. We talked a lot about the cycle of violence in our in one of our previous episodes and how it just kind of snowballs and doesn't really solve anything. But um, Shameless plug. <laughs> Shameless plug. Um, 
So having said that, maybe uh, a little bit more current affairs just to, to help us get a, a broad scope of things, and then I can dive into some of the nitpicky stuff, if you don't mind. Um, Bibi Netanyahu, longtime prime minister, I believe, of, uh, of, of Israel. Former prime minister. Former prime minister. That's what I was going to say. He's recently been exchanged, and, and he's been on corruption charges as well. I think he was convicted, too. Um, no. What, no? No. Not convicted. He has three trials standing now, pending, okay. in hearing. So with that, then, um, who is the PLO? Like, how are they represented in the government right now? Um, the PLO is the Palestine Liberation Organization. It's the organization that was established in uh, the early 1960s, I think 64, around that time, uh, to represent the Palestinians all over the world. Um, the in 1993, there was a process called the Oslo process, or the Oslo Accords, peace accords between Israel and the PLO. And uh, as a result of that process, in 1994, Yasser Arafat, the undisputed leader of the PLO at that time, was allowed to return to Palestine. Uh, so he returned to, to Gaza, and then he moved to Ramallah. Gaza is in, near the Egyptian border. Ramallah was once upon a time uh, in Jordan, so that's the West Bank. And he put his, uh, his headquarters in Ramallah in the Mukata and uh, um, established the PA, which is the Palestinian Authority. So in fact, the PLO controlled the West Bank. In 2005, Ariel Sharon, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, decided that he is no longer interested to keep hold of Gaza. And he unilaterally just left Gaza. He uprooted the settlers were in the Gaza Strip, about 7,000, 8,000 people there, Jews, and uh, gave the Palestinians the right to uh, rule over Gaza. But they still um, had a claim on the West Bank at that time? Yes, since 67, Israel has claim on the West Bank, and Israel still rules uh, the, the West Bank under occupation, Israeli occupation. Uh, and Gaza was, until 2005, under Israeli occupation from 67 until 2005. Between 2005, until uh, 2006, only for one year, uh, the PLO controlled West Bank and Gaza. And then under the American influence and American pressure, this George W. Bush at that time, the uh, United States pushed for elections. Democracy was very important for George W. Bush. So he, wants, uh, he wanted democracy also in, in Palestine. Um, and there were elections, free elections were held in, in, in the West Bank and Gaza. And to the so-called surprise of many people, Hamas won. Um, and uh, the PLO found it very, very difficult to rel relinquish power in, 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 on Gaza. So there was civil war uh, for a few months between uh, the PLO, Fatah. Fatah is the military wing of, of the PLO, and Hamas. And in 2007, Hamas took over. Uh, all the... PLO, Fatah people had to relinquish their role and to leave, or they died, or they no longer associate themselves with the Fatah. These are the options that were left for them. And since 2007, Hamas is controlling Gaza. So in effect, you ask me a question, the PLO, for the time being, controls only the West Bank. He has no control over Gaza. And does Hamas have um, a parliamentary protocols and procedures and things? Like, do they, do they assemble like any other government, or are they... Because the, the information we hear from the states is usually that they're just a terrorist group, but I suspect there's a lot more um, 
politics involved than simply terrorism because they seem to want to actually govern. Uh, Hamas certainly governs uh, Gaza, I don't think, very successfully, uh, according to any parameter. I mean, if there were that kind of success in Canada, I think that you elect another another body. Uh, Hamas is, is many things. It's an ideological organization. It is religious organization. It's a charity organization. And it's a terrorist organization. And it's a political organization. It's, it's many, many things. So they do have an established type of government, though, right? Like, do they have elected officials or nominated officials no. and people appointed as titles with duties and responsibilities? And well, yeah, they, they have a leader, and they have a group of people uh, around the leader. Uh, Sinwar is named now. Ichi Sinwar is the leader. At this time, is the political leader. They also have religious leaders because, as I said, it's also a religious movement. So they're very in tune with their religious leaders. They they have to consult with them. Because religion is the most important thing for the Hamas, as I said, it's a religious movement. Um, uh, but the, the political leader is the one who caused the shot. Um, he was elected. I don't think he was elected. He was selected uh, by uh, the Guardia, the people who run the show in the Hamas. They, they decided uh, after uh, Mashal uh, more or less uh, was not around anymore. He, he doesn't live in. He did not live in Gaza, so they decided to have someone local who grew up there, who spent time in Israeli jail, who knows resistance, who knows how to fight, who knows how to tick, who knows how to hurt Israel. So they elected, uh, they selected Sinwar, and uh, he runs the show with, uh, with his own men, with his with his people. Uh, but it's not, it it is not a democracy. If you're asking me whether it's democracy with elected systems, with parliament and so on, no, that, that's not. It's a very authoritarian. Regime uh, that is based on religion. So, what would negotiations look like? Not necessarily a solution just yet, but negotiation would obviously have to start with both the PLO and Hamas having some kind of uh, consensus before they could agree anything with the Israeli government, right? It's very difficult. Um, you know, I think I think that they have very difficult uh, and very complicated relationship. I mean, to the outer world, that's what they say, that they speak and they communicate with each other and they have to live together and so on. But actually, they find it extremely difficult to do that. Uh, the main problem is that uh, the, um, the PA election were held, as I said, in 2000 and last time, I think it was 2006, around that time. And uh, uh, since then, there was no elections. Uh, there were supposed to be elections uh, last year. And uh, uh, two weeks before the time of the elections, Abu Mazen, the president of the PA, just canceled the elections. Now, why did he cancel the elections? Your speculation is as good as mine. But the speculation that I believe is that he understood that he was going to run the elections to take place. He's going to lose and Hamas is going to take over. Now, as you can understand, the cancellation of the election was not very popular among the Hamas movement because they could have achieved the West Bank rule. And uh, because no elections, they, they can't have it. So they have many grievances, I would say, justified from their point of view, very justified grievances uh, against uh, Abu Mazen or Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the PA. And as you can imagine, this is one of the cases where uh, there is a line of interests and people see eye to eye in the United States, in Washington, in Jerusalem, Israel, and Ramallah. Uh, all the three parties do not want Hamas to take over in West Bank. So that's why Abu Mazen was able to pull this thing. 
because if uh, Israel and the United States will stand against, they said, no, 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 should be election, you declared, we didn't have elections now for donkey years, it's about time. You pretend to be a, a Democrat, then, you know, in democracy, we hold elections. But of course, nobody wants Hamas in, nobody of this, people don't want Hamas in, in power in, in Amala, and that's why it didn't happen. So I would say that the, the relation between uh, Hamas and the PLO are quite tense. They are not amicable. They don't see eye to eye. They are in competition, in very tough competition with each other. So why doesn't that lead toward people trying to um, to construct a three-state solution instead of just a two-state solution? Because that seems to me too hard to negotiate between Israel, PLO, and Hamas. Well, it didn't work last time. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but well, I mean, I, I can reveal to you. Uh, I am now writing a book on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's my next book. Spoilers. Um, and. Uh, the idea behind this book is to analyze what happened since 1993, since Oslo, to explain why, despite the best efforts of many, many parties, including the United States, we're still yearning for peace, and to devise the parameters for successful negotiations if the right opportunity is going to present itself. One of the conclusions, and, and I base my books on my, this book, on primary sources, meaning that I spend time in archives. Yeah, that's um, my gig. In, <laughs> in, uh, I love archives. Oh, I'm an archivist, so. <laughs> ah, okay, I love archives. That's just the feeling of a paper that you know that you are the first time to see. You get a it's box, a you don't know what's going to be in there, and it's just yeah. learn everything in it. Love it too. It's like yeah. a box of surprises, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so I spent time in, in London, in Jerusalem, in Oslo, and in Washington. Um, uh, in archives, and moreover, I uh, interviews, in, interviewed more than 50 people who were in the room negotiating, uh, from prime minister to deputy prime minister to foreign minister, to diplomats to senior um, uh, negotiators from six countries. So it's a major undertaking. One of the conclusion, the book is not written yet. Okay, I'm, I'm just assembling the information yet. I need a sabbatical to write a book. Um, but one of the conclusions, true for the 27th of July, 2021, 1636, is that I support three states solution. <laughs> so I, I cease to believe that two state solution is, is possible. I think the idea that it's going to be a tunnel or a bridge that is going to somehow connect between West Bank and Gaza is ridiculous. Uh, unsustainable and could not have happened. Uh, it was something that the ideas that Israel agreed to in order to please the Palestinians, because for the Palestinians, it's very important to be together. Um, they are their brethren, it's come from the same people. They are not willing to acknowledge that the rift between them is insoluble. So they always claim Gaza is part of us and so on. Where in practice, it's not. They are very divided nations. So I think that this trying to um, insist that it's going to be two-state solution, I think it was delusional. And I say, okay, you want two-state solution, you think that Gaza would be able at one point to be part of the Palestinian state? That's fine. I'm not against this. Um, but let's do it peaceful. So we'll do it in stages. So the first stage is going to be between Israel and, and Palestine and the West Bank, and then there will be further stages. 
My optimal stage is first to have Palestine in the West Bank, make it viable, make it sustainable with the help of the good world, nations like the United States, your country, Canada, my country, United Kingdom, Australia, Japan, UAE, uh, the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, people who have money and goodwill, who are willing to invest in the West Bank, making it economic, economically viable and uh, um, a place of security for Palestinians and Jews in the West Bank and in Israel. And then let's move to the second stage. Second stage might be some sort of confederation between uh, the PA, the West Bank, and Jordan. I spoke with Jordanians. They don't, do not say from the very start we are against this. So Nobody this, told me that. This would be, this confederation, it would look a lot more like um, how Quebec and Canada kind of came to terms with each other and decided to live with each other grudgingly and then... Uh, I don't know. I don't know whether I, I don't, oh. I'm not an expert of Quebec, so, so I can't. I can't make the what comparison. Hap what happened was the French in Canada were um, a lot of during the 50s. Um, there was some political stuff happened, and Quebec nationalism rose in the in the 50s and 60s, and um, in the early 70s and in the 90s we had a couple referendums. The one in the 90s was very close where um, it was like 51 to 49 to stay in Canada. And so, since then though, um, I do remember that when that happened watching it on TV, you know, gripping your sheets, wondering what's going to happen with your country. And um, but since then, Quebec and Canada have kind of like that's almost a non-issue anymore. There's still people that claim we're going to leave Canada, blah, blah, blah. Even in my province here in Alberta, there's people that want to leave, but it's not taken seriously at all. And because we're all kind of just living together, we, we're neighbors now. And it's like I've worked in Quebec before and it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter anymore. And I kind of expect that that would be an ideal situation where we all kind of grudgingly accept each other as neighbors. Um, but I think the difference would be that the, the three-state option would be more of a confederate, so more like the states what? where the federal level has limited powers, if I understand you correctly. Jeez, and it would be the state getting. levels that... I don't know where you get... I'm, I'm, but I'm wondering if by confederation that's kind of one, like these groups all under one um, political banner where they can sort out their differences in a parliament, say. Is this kind of what you mean by a confederation? I mean that there's going to be different seats of power, and uh, there will be one army and one foreign minister, one foreign relations, but uh, the running of the things on the ground in terms of the economy, in terms of tourism, agriculture, uh, infrastructure, and so on, will be in the local level. Now, you have to bear in mind that once upon a time, up until 67, the West Bank was part of Jordan. But it's not something that they are not familiar with. And it's not such a long history ago. Gaza was under uh, Egypt in 67. That's the Six-Day War that shuffled the cards and changed the reality on the ground. Um, so I'm saying, after you established the, the Palestine, the West Bank, and make it viable and make it secure for all parties, then with time, as you build more trust between the parties, mm -hmm. 
to see that it's not that terrible that to have Palestine. Yeah, I hope. Uh, so then it's possible to embark on conversations with other parts. So it's possible to embark on conversations with Jordan about confederation with Jordan. It's possible to embark conversation with Gaza to have also Gaza part of the deal and so on. Mm. Especially if um, uh, the vision of confederation with Jordan and the West Bank will be appealing to them, meaning that their situation in Gaza is, is continued to be appalling, and which is, it is quite appalling. You would not like to live in Gaza. Um, so um, that's, that's my hope, but I think that's the that's a trajectory that need to, to go. I can tell you that I oppose the occupation. I oppose the, the, the Israeli occupation in the West Bank. I think it's terrible. I witnessed the occupation with my own eyes. I was working uh, with some leaders of Israel at that time um, in, in the, during the 1980s. And uh, I, I, can't, I can't, will never forget my first visit to the West Bank in 1985. When I saw the injustice in my eyes, and I said, "This is unacceptable. Um, I would not like to live even one day under occupation." And I, I don't think it's it's right. It's, it's simply not just. Well, an occupation well, I, doesn't I, I, build that trust you were talking about, and that trust is what's going to push absolutely. people forward because they don't. Everyone's looking at each other side-eyed. Um, sorry, with like they're seeing enemies, and so they're seeing enemies, so they send an army. And absolutely. You and I use this word neighbor because it's what they would become. And uh, I've seen pictures of um, the West Bank and uh, Eastern Jerusalem, and there's just fences everywhere. And it looks like uh, some places it looked like it was, um, I don't know if it's still like that. That was a couple of years ago. I've seen these pictures and some videos uh, when you're driving around there. It looked like it was kind of um, everything segregated by a fence and by a garden, barbed wire everywhere because everyone's afraid of everybody. And the steps to this confederation sounds like a great idea, but the it almost seems like there'll be need to be baby steps to get towards this. And I do like the idea of them having to rely on each other um, for defense and for um, national uh, international relations and whatnot, because then they have to develop that trust. But um, what sort of uh, and build? You mentioned that. Sorry, I'm a little short on breath. Men you mentioned that building up the West Bank would be a good step to this, but what kind of, I guess, baby steps could the people of the region take uh, towards um, fostering trust between these people? And besides the obvious of you know not occupying each other's territories or firing rockets at each other, um, which would be a start. You have to give hope to people. And you give hope to people by improving the quality of life. So you develop a sustainable economy in, in, the, in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have any big factories. They hardly have any high tech. They hardly have anything that, that you know as a Canadian and I know as living in Britain. They, they don't have this basic infrastructure. Yeah. And money can, can play a huge role in driving forward the economy. And there are many, many things that Israelis and Palestinians and Jordanians can work together for the benefit of all. And this is the things that, that needs to be developed. They needs to have a lot of investment. Now, for investment to come, you have to have goodwill from mm -hmm. Israel and from Palestine and to make sure that there's no corruption because unfortunately a lot of money 
just disappeared in the Palestinian Authority. So no corruption, you know where the money goes, you know to where, you, where it is invested, you know for what purposes it's it made, and you make sure that it goes to the people. And you want to see the involvement in Israelis, of Israelis taking part in this, because that's how you build trust. Because you don't want to be conceived only as the enemy. You want to be conceived as a partner. And it is possible to do that change if, and Israel here is the, should be the kindest party because it's far more powerful than Palestine. Mm. Israel should be kind to the Palestinians and to build on the momentum of the Abraham Accords that was signed during the past year with four Arab countries build on that and, and utilize these connections to bring them forward to do something also with the Palestinians because the Palestinians think that the Abraham Accords come at their expense. They don't understand that actually it can be utilized for their benefit. We need to make all this momentum to be seen as something that is going to improve also the condition of the Palestinians. And this is doable. It is possible to do. But of course, for this, you need to have Good leadership on both sides. If he doesn't, you don't have good leadership that share the same vision. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And if you have, well, it sounds like um, if you want to build a relationship, you build something together. Uh, and this happens with friends, and this happens with uh, you know provinces yeah. with countries. And that sounds so. You open a factory and you hire you hire people for their skills and not their uh, political affiliation or their which side, which team they on, or which hockey team they like. And all of a sudden they build a relationship and they don't care that they're shoveling gravel with, uh, you know, a Palestinian, they're shoveling gravel with a man. And that changes a lot of stuff. And, Absolutely. And I know when we talked, I've talked about this a bit in previous episodes. Um, I wasn't always well off. Uh, and I, I kind of understand in a very small way that desperation um, that comes with uh, having little hope and you look for a target. So, uh, and so is this what you mean by um, the goodwill of the world? But um, like we have to be open to this as well instead of, you know, pushing one side against each other because from the outside, a lot of times you see people seeing it as like, which side are you on? And then, you know, cheering for a team like they're watching a boxing match and this isn't healthy. Um, but, um, and without knowing anything about the actual um, situation there. And so, would foreign investment of, say, you know, someone comes in and decides, well, we're going to build a power plant and we're going to make it accessible to everyone in the region. Uh, and, you know, we're not going to care about who we hire. Um, we're going to hire locals uh, and bring in as little uh, external um, expertise as possible um would would that kind of would those kind of projects foster that um because or would they get bogged down in corruption and red tape i don't know i think that investment if it's invested in the correct way in a just way in a reasonable mm -hmm. way in uh, importantly for the right purposes can make a difference mm -hmm. positive difference but first, I would like to have a vision. I would mm. like to have a vision. And what we are lacking is a vision. Um, and if, if we are just a pragmatist and said, I'm going to go wherever um, the circumstances are going to lead me, this kind of pragmatist, mm -hmm. then it's, it's not going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. You have to have leaders who have a vision who are going to say, this is 
what I want to achieve. And these are my red lines. So, get so I can tell you what, what my red lines are. My red lines are no occupation. Right. Okay, no, no occupation. It's not just. I can't accept this. It's simply against my DNA. I resist this. I can't accept any occupation. Mm-hmm. Nobody should live under occupation. That's for me, it's a red line. So this should stop. It should stop with the Palestinians because it's harming them. They have to, to live every day under occupation. But it's also damaging Israel because it's undermined Israeli democracy. It's undermined values. You can't be a just person if you maintain the occupation. Evil hurts. So for me, this is a red line. Sorry? <laughs> so it's um, kind of an old adage that I remember where, you know, doing evil does harm to the evildoer. Um, Absolutely. So for me, the occupation is absolute no-no. So for anyone who says, I want the status quo to continue, I said, no. I'm not in favor of the status quo. I'm not in the continuation of evil. Second, for me, peace is an objective. It is not only tactics, it is strategy. Because I want to see the children of Palestine and children of Israel play together. Until now, they're fighting each other with blood. And many people die. That's, that has to be enough. Enough. So for me, peace is, is, is an end. And it's a strategy. Again, it's something that is beneficial to the Palestinians. And it's for Israel. Third, we have to do it piecemeal with trust building. So we have to say, we have to sit together and say, okay, what do you need? Not only what you want, what do you want that I want? And everyone has the dreams. I'm not <laughs> interested in your dreams, I'm sorry. We've been uh, fooling around the dreams for too many, too many years. What do you need? What do you need in order to have peace, to start something? Mm. What is crucial to you? And we start a rapport. We start a debate. We start a dialogue. So like between stuff the Israelis like and the Palestinians in order to establish what the needs are and how we can get to these needs. Mm. And you find the bridges. You find the commonalities. And you do projects together and you start with certain things and certain agreements. The Palestinians don't like the settlements. They don't like the settlements because they believe that every settlement is depriving them of their land because they see the West Bank as their land. And they say, you know, we are are now on 22% of the partition, 1947. Okay, so we objected that in 47. Okay, so we know better now. Now we accept. It's only 22%. Don't take any way, even a centimeter for 22%. Mm-hmm. So they object to the settlements. I can understand that. I can appreciate that. So we have to find a way with the settlements. We have to find a way about Jerusalem. We have to find a way with the holy places. We have to find a way for security, and we have to find a way for the refugee problems. Now I can tell you, as a researcher who study all these hot potatoes for many, many years, I can tell you that all these issues are solvable. They have a solution. Solution is not the issue of magic. It's an issue of goodwill of both parties. I think so it's we have. a logistical issue, though, don't you think? Because like the viability, the start one point one relies on like an entire generation's worth of re-education. That takes time. And in that time, you need to have settlements not be progressing and you need to have walls not being put up and you need to have rockets not being fired. So like, it's not like we can sit in a room and agree to something and sign a piece of paper and fix it. This is like a, a psychological problem with a whole group of people and a whole other group of people also dealing with the same psychological problem on the other side of the literal fence. So I agree. The I viability agree. question I find difficult because to make an ec- economy or to give people jobs or to build a factory, those people need to be competent at running the factory 
and, and using the tools that you give them. So foreign investors, I don't think there's a problem or a lack of goodwill. Any central bank around the world would say, yeah, let's all just print 1% extra money and give it to them and let them convert it. But I think a solution similar to a blockchain where everybody in the world can track the spending of that type of donation to ensure that it's going towards buying like raw resources, which get refined and then get sold as an economic practice. I think that makes more sense because it, 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 it doesn't build trust just on a hope. It builds trust on a public ledger that everybody can see and read and know that their, their money is not being corrupted. Well, transparency enforcing trust is what you're saying. But like a structural transparency, something that can't be corrupted or hidden. Do you know what I mean? Like that type of system, I think, needs to be part of the viability solution right from the beginning before you start anything. Because while you're educating people to use those tools, giving them the tools and having them sit there means nothing. And then hiring foreigners who are well trained to run the factories in the meantime does nothing for the people either. Do you know what I mean? So like the economic viability problem, I think, is the biggest problem we face right now. I I don't know whether it's the biggest, but it's certainly a hurdle. But uh, you put a lot of emphasis on the economy, which, of course, is important, but it's not only the economy that matters. And the economy alone will not solve the problem. My thought. Oh, sorry. My thought is, is that we've had a we've had a lot of successful states that didn't rely on those uh, those technologies that have been successful for. Um, extended periods of time. It would help, but it seems that the people at the top would need to start talking uh, along a certain line for people to start accepting that and to implement that. So, we're going to take walls down as a hard sell, but if you have the rhetoric of, you know, we're going to be neighbors, we're going to get along, we're going to do this, and you start talking about that for five years and everyone's saying it on every side and everyone starts to, it's less of a, you know, ripping Band-Aid off and more of a, okay, let's take it off together. And so, then you can implement these technologies. And I think you're misunderstanding what I'm saying, though. I think the economy is necessary because it builds the things they need. Yes. If you have clean water and a nat- water treatment plants, you need skilled engineers to build the thing. You need people who produce like steel and rock and cement and things like that. Like you right. need an educated workforce in right. order to build the hospital and so the water plants. And that's the, the how, and but the how relies on the why. And you need both of them to kind of work together. So I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> so no, I, I, I agree with both of you. And uh, I think it's a process. And I said again, I would like to emphasize the issue of vision. You have to know what you are, where you're heading and what mm-hmm. you are willing to do. And you're, you have to be willing to pay the price. Listen, peace is a very precious commodity. And there's no precious commodity that comes uh, with no money. Mm-hmm. Every precious commodity is very, very costly, and peace is a very costly thing. But I believe that it's worthy of every dime that you're going to invest in that. I think it's very, very important. So you have to start a process. And and I said, you have to put certain clear lines, red lines, that are not negotiable. So I said, occupation for me is not negotiable, it should stop. Similarly, terrorism is not negotiable, it should stop. I will not have zero tolerance to any act of terrorism. Zero tolerance to any act of violence because this was going to corrupt and derail the entire process. So it's zero tolerance to all these things. We have to stop all this nonsense and, and, and start building something that is constructive, as Israel does now with Bahrain. If Israel is able to do that with Bahrain and the UAE, it can do it with Palestine. It's far closer. The thing is that they are rivaling on, on, on the same piece of land. 
And that's why I'm saying there are no angels in this story. But there have to be some sort of reconciliation and understanding that one state solution is certainly not viable. And there will come a time in which the Palestinians, in terms of the numbers, and it's not that far away, that are going to be even larger number than the Israelis in that piece of land. And what are you going to do then? Are you going to deny their, their rights forever? Uh, I think it's absolutely unacceptable. So it's, it is in the interest of Israel to divide this land and to make the Palestinians the ability to prosper as they should, as the other nation should, and live not together, but alongside each other in harmony, as France and Germany. I mean, would you believe that France and Germany will have the relationship that they have now in 1945? You would not dream about this. But it made possible because we had leaders who believed in the vision of peace and were able to implement this. Now, there's no shortcuts. You're absolutely right. There's a lot of bad blood between the two parties. So it may take time and there should be education and there should be overhauling the entire education curricula and, and speak in peace, in peace terminology, rather than incitement and hatred against each other. Mm-hmm. And so- started to see us as human beings. That's, that's very vital. It's, mm-hmm. it's maybe more important than the economy. It takes time. But we need to have vision for this. And we have to start speaking the language of peace and to build on the goodwill of many, many people across the borders between the Palestinians and the Israelis who don't want this anymore. So uh, just a full disclosure, I am a Palestinian sympathizer, as you can probably tell from from my talks and uh, from the things I've been saying. But to play devil's advocate on the flip side, in order for a peace agreement to start moving forward and have some economic viability to help rebuild and have services and public works available to the Palestinian people, uh, assuming there is a ceasefire that stands, um, that isn't broken, from the Israeli point of view, how do you go about with a trust when any individual Palestinian can come out and break that trust for the entire group? I think one of the other problems is we're associated individual actions to an entire group of people. What? And that's sort of another human thing that we all do, the us versus them thing. How do you tackle that? There, there is a difference between individual, as you say, with a spoiler who will want to derail the process, and um, a government or a rule that legitimizes this. There's a huge difference between the two. Um, I, I want to see real, genuine attempt of all parties to stop violence. Now, if it's going to be like the 1990s, what we call the swinging door, the policy that was taking place by Yasser Arafat, that on the one hand is offering you the olive leaf, and on the other hand is unleashed terrorism, this will be unacceptable. And there should not be any double standards about the use for many years, uh, Yasser Arafat has a dual relationship with violence. He was toying with violence all the time. So he, he would speak uh, the language of peace and think that he can exert more pressure on Israel to concede to more compromises and more concessions if he's going to release some violence. And he, doesn't understand, he did not understand until the last moment of his life that one comes at the expense of the, of the other. That is impossible for the Israelis to have this duality. They can't, they can't have it. When you live under the shadow of terrorism, this peace is losing its attractiveness. It's not an attractive opposition anymore. But they're saying, why should I have it? I'm better off with the occupation, with the status quo. 
So terrorism is unacceptable as such, and uh, it should not be condoned. So if you are Palestinian sympathizer, you should be the first to understand that the Palestinian will get far better results with a policy of nonviolence. Let them go and study Gandhi. Uh, it's, it's far better for them than to study Che Guevara and, and Franz Fanon. Uh, game theory suggests the prisoner's dilemma. Basically, it essentially says no violence is ever productive, period. Absolutely. But the no problem is the dilemma is that trust element needs to be there before, before everybody can benefit from the solution. And in my view, all of humanity has always benefited from cooperation and synergy. It's, so it's hard, though, because violence is um, unfortunately comfortable for some people. Uh, it becomes this, this antagonism this just becomes this thing that feels right. And it's born out of that desperation to some extent and born out of, well, this is everything I know. But if we build that trust that he's talking about, that you're talking about, sorry, <laughs> you're right here, um, that these people uh, that are pushed to an extreme position being that which, um, you know, by any means necessary, uh, become less, they become fewer and fewer of these. And then those that won't give up the violence become more and more fringe um, and eventually We'll have to find a way, but it's not going to, I, I can't see a way where this, any solution, no matter how uh, good will end up being, um, I don't want to say this, but like bloodless, it's, there's going to be tragedy along the way as far uh, down any path. And it seems that we have to accept this to some extent in order to have um, a future without without a massive amount because it seems and i I'd ask if you agree um the path we're on isn't sustainable and would lead to a greater and greater amount of bloodshed in the future violence the only thing that violence yeah. brings is more violence that's yeah. the only thing that violence breeds. and show me what the palestinian gain uh from violence until now uh, yeah. they, they gain nothing and they found themselves in a more desperate situation if they were opting seriously since Oslo in 1993, seriously about peace, and there was no this wave of terrorism. I, I lived in Israel during the 1990s. It was horrible. It was really horrible. Every time that I went out of the home, I'm using public transportation, I didn't know whether I'm going to return home. So living in such a fear all the time, it just corrupt everything. And that fear is reinforced. It's like the checkpoints, and it's like the, the teachers at school spouting the propaganda to the on both sides too. Like absolutely, it right oh. from children up to to grown adults to use this emotional outlet of violence. Kids throwing rocks at tanks is emblematic of that. Absolutely, checkpoints are horrible. I said it's part of the occupation, and the occupation is is vile. It should stop. Terrorism should stop. We have to have people with vision who can see beyond violence, that can see beyond the incitement, and say that this is unsustainable and we should have two-state solution for the people. And I said, later on, Gaza can join, but not at the first, because I don't think that Gaza today is prepared to, to have peace. You so can't negotiate in good faith with someone whose agenda is very, very clear to destroy you. So what you're going to talk about, how to destroy me? That's, uh, that's a non-starter for negotiation. So it has to, it has to come from, from a different way. And you should not stuck yourself against the wall and bang yourself ahead of your, against the wall. It's not very good for the wall and certainly not very good to, for your head. 
So don't try to do the same things time and again because we saw that they failed. We have to come with new ideas. We have to come with new propositions to pave a way forward. But you have to have a vision of peace. So the, the corporate ideal to this would be what they do to corporations who are in this type of um, this type of scenario where they would have some type of external third party unbiased leadership or receivership and take over the entire thing, have them all present as party to the discussions, but have uh, an independent. And I think that's what the U.S. was trying to do during like the Camp David talks and the Oslo peace agreements and stuff, if I'm not mistaken. Sounds like what you would want in a, kind of a Swiss end game where you have a bunch of you have one kind of national body and a bunch of cantons that are completely autonomous but everyone can move around freely through the them. point is just to, to circumvent that initial contention right it's mm -hmm. just to get the peace process moving and then you can dump it back on the people involved once it's gotten moving and i think the west is really fond of these types of ideas because then they get control over who's in government and that benefits them personally and then they abuse that type of power too so what do you think of having third-party involvement or, or the West, other than investment and education and giving tools and, and ideas? I think um, what other things can we do as far as government and helping them get past the hurdles of emotional um, combative responses to each other? So this will be the last question just for time. Good. So th there are three ways here. There's uh, one way is direct negotiations, which would be my preferred way if at all possible. So you put the Israelis and the Palestinians to talk and bang hands against each other. The second is facilitation. So you have uh, a third party like Oslo, um, Norway or Sweden or Switzerland or any other country that can pull the strings and have good, good relationship with uh, both parties, Israel and Palestine who is willing to put goodwill and some money to facilitate this to, to happen, but they don't have any power, real power, uh, certainly not over Israel, uh, that Israel would appreciate. Uh, that's why they only can facilitate. And then we have the mediator. A mediator is only one that I can see now, and this is the United States. But the United States has to come last. The United States, Cam David uh, 2000 was a mistake uh, because it was ill-prepared and at least the Palestinians didn't want to be there. They, I don't know if you read the literature, but when they went out of Camp David, they felt that they went out of prison. That's how they perceived Camp David. But it tells you what their feeling was. They thought it was a trap, an Israeli-American uh, trap. Um, and they felt that they were running away from prison when they, when they left. So I think that was ill-conceived, Camp David. It was a mistake. If you're serious about mediation, so mediation has to come last after you bridged many of the gaps and you leave a very small number of issues that need still to be resolved. Two or three issues max that you need to, to resolve that they're not very far apart, but there's something in the middle that they could not come together. And this is where the U.S. can come in. But the U.S. have to come there as an impartial sort of mediator and employing leverage when there is a need. So they have many, many carrots to offer, but they should also have the stick to offer. And the United States, at least in, in, in recent years, was unwilling to hold the stick against Israel. So if the Israeli leaders are sure that the United States' uh, uh, support is going to be granted to them and they're never going to suffer the, the hardship of the, of the stick, 
then they're not going to, to compromise. And it's, then it's going to be very difficult to sway them from their position. So mediation can be useful, depending how to use it and when you use it. It's very important to know how and when to use it. But you can't have a summit when you have 20 things on the agenda and the gap between two sides is wide and expect that within two weeks, you'll be able to do everything. That's, that's not going to happen. Is the U.S. really impartial, though? That, that's sort of my follow-up. Sorry to... No, it's not. Yeah. Uh, it's not. It's, it's not impartial, and it's not going to be impartial, not for the foreseeable future. That's not what I insist upon. I want it to be fair, and I want it to play the role of the mediator in a fair fashion, so don't be that bet betray trust. Don't betray your own uh, uh, agreements that you, that you stuck, your own promises. And, and be willing to use the, the carrot and the stick against both sides. That's what I wanted to do. Okay. And this is not going to be necessarily at the expense of the friendship with Israel. I don't think so. Because I think, and I'm saying this also as an Israeli, because I'm also an Israeli. I did not relinquish my citizenship. I live in Britain, but I'm an Israeli. I think it's for the best interest of Israel to stop the occupation to have peace with the Palestinians. It's certainly for the Palestinians, but I'm talking for my own partisan best interest of, as an Israeli. I think it's very good for Israel to have two-state solution. It's very good to think to have peace. It's very good for Israel to stop the occupation. Okay. Thank you so much for being on the show and answering all of our questions here. We wish we had more time with you, as always. Hopefully, we can coax you to come back on on another day. But uh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And, uh, and please, yes, yeah, send me the, the results. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Should Professor Cohen, uh, Raphael Cohen Almagor, we've been speaking with on the subject of Israel-Palestine conflict. Check out his new book, coming out soon. It's uh, coming out on Thursday, the twenty-eighth uh, or twenty-ninth. Sorry. Two uh, days. Two days. Two days. Yeah, I looked for it and I couldn't find it. And I was wondering why, and I looked at the date it was coming out, and it was just like, oh, it's not even out yet. <laughs> Congratulations so much for finishing, though. Uh, it's a, always a huge accomplishment to put something into the press. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Good to see you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.